Got a good thumbprint off the cash register. Thumbprint? Yeah. Because one lousy thumbprint cannot do. Well, maybe nothing. Maybe everything I thought was right before. I've got R and I cross-checking our files. Right about what before? Think about it, Starsk. Think about the odds of your girl going into a store and being shot by the same guys we're after. Saying someone's trying to get to me through Terry? Christian Lynch, we are now four months into a deep dive into the 1992 sports romantic comedy cult classic, The Cutting Edge. Christian, Ben, our guest today is the film's director, Paul Michael Glazer. Paul is an actor and director. He's best known for playing Detective Dave Starsky in the 1970s TV series Starsky and Hutch. Audiences also know him from stints on Third Watch, Ray Donovan. As a director, he's worked on 40 years worth of TV, and his films include Band of the Hand, The Running Man, The Cutting Edge, The Air Up There, and Kazam. Christian, Ben, give a warm welcome to Paul Michael Glazer. Welcome, Paul. (laughs) Welcome, Paul. What an honor. Thank Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for that. It's good to be here. So like we were saying, Paul, um, we have been discussing the movie The Cutting Edge in incredible depth for the last few months. Um, (laughs) It's been a long, interesting journey. Um, But I guess I'm curious... um, to ask you first just about how you encountered the script of Tony Gilroy's. Like, was this brought to you by an agent? Did you have a previous relationship with Tony? Were you guys basically paired together by a studio or producer? How exactly did the script wind up in your hands? The script was originally sent to me by uh, Laddie, Alan Ladd Jr. Uh, He was the head of MGM. And uh, he said, uh, he sent it to me and he said he thought it might be something I'd be interested in. So I read it. Uh, I had just done uh, Running Man, and so I was kind of in that action director cubbyhole. In the year 2017, an innocent man accused of a crime has a choice. Hard time or prime time. Sensational. Perfect contestant. I want him. He must pay or play the running man. On your mark! I'll be back. And uh, I love doing a comedy, so uh, romantic comedy. And so I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. And so he said, well, go meet the producer. And I went to meet the producer who uh, initially said to me, we're having a meeting and, and, uh, and had an executive there with a woman. And uh, she interrupted me at some point when I was talking about the script. She says, well, you're destroying the characters. So the meeting didn't go that great. <laughs> and, uh, and I left and uh, told my agent, and I said, it didn't go great. I'd, I'd like to meet with him alone. They set that up. And I walked in and I said, look, there's an elephant in the room. Yeah, you don't know if I can direct a romantic comedy, given the fact that I just lost my daughter. And, uh, and he said, uh, that's true. I said, well, okay. I said, I mean, you know, if you look at Starsky and Hutch and look at all the tags on the shows, and look at what I do as a performer, you, you understand my grasp of romantic comedy is pretty good. So uh, we talked a long time and everything. He said, well, I'll think about it. And then he went off. I went and I left. After a couple of days, I hadn't heard anything. So I went <laughs> to play golf with some friends of mine. And I'm on the first tee and the, 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 the phone rings at the starter shack. And it's my agent calling saying that Robert had decided he wanted me to direct the film. So uh, that's where it started. Uh, he and I had become 
have become incredibly close friends. He produced the air up there. From Hollywood Pictures, Coach Jimmy Dolan traveled to Africa Whoa. to discover the next basketball superstar. Kid's got the hang time of a hot air balloon. Like, hey, Jordan. What he found. We'll play basketball games. We bet all our land. Is a tribe who needed his help. You will be our coach. Together, they're about to play the game of their lives. Kevin Bacon. He's ghosted her. Cover! The air up there, rated PG. Uh, and uh, and Kazan. Who dare to wake me? So that's how it began. And then Laddie said to me, I'll make the movies, you can cast the girl. And so I started to look for my, my prospects. And I was in New York having a casting session. And uh, I just finished talking to D.B. Sweeney, who I thought was interesting. And I thought, well, okay, let's see. And then in the door walks this girl right after him, wearing this black and red checkered shirt and pigtails and wire glasses. It was Maura Kelly. And Maura said to me, she came in and she, she said, hi. And I pulled her right there. And I said to my assistant, I said, go and get that guy. And they went out and caught D.B. before he got to the elevator and they brought him in. I had the two of them read together. I mean, that's truly a serendipitous moment. I mean, the the casting in this movie, we all agree that it all hinges on Kate and Doug's relationship with one another feeling believable. It's very much a, at times, <clears throat> kind of antagonistic, like a 40s film uh, in which, like, you know, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, kind of back and forth, threat to tat style uh, dialogue. And I think we're just kind of, you know, curious how difficult it was to find people that were not only... Uh, could read the lines and portray these characters, but you're also trying to make a sports film, which there's very few ways to cheat. Was that, did you have any reservations when you were casting people in a room, whether they could skate on ice or have any level of believability in skating? Well, I, I was, I was about to say that the, uh, I told them that there had to be a skating audition. I had met with uh, Paul Glazier and auditioned for him, and he wanted me to come back for a callback, but I had to skate for him at Rockefeller Center, which I did not know how to do at the time. So my brother, who was big on hockey, took me out and showed me a few things, and I went down to the rink and found that going backwards, I was great, but forward, I was pitiful. Going into the audition, what was most important was convincing Paul that I had the emotional understanding of this character and that I could portray her and then let us work out crossing the bridge of skating when we had to come to it. D.B. said, hey, I skate. You don't have to do it. I said, well, the sister one. I went down to Rockefeller Plaza that night and met them there. When I got there, uh, I saw D.B. on the ice making his way around, not too sure of himself on skates. And then I saw Moira off on the, on the ice and she was with one of her brothers and she was on skates and they were shadow boxing, sparring. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, whether she can skate or not, this girl's, you know, she's definitely got, got the goods in terms of learning. So, uh, you know, I had uh, Robin Cousins being, who was the, uh, the technical advisor, civil medal. Silver medalist. Now, Robin Cousins of Great Britain. He won the gold medal in the 1980 Olympic Games at Lake Placid. Always puts on a terrific show. Al, he is such a character. And uh, later he told me, he said, you know, she started when she was a child. She probably would have gone to the Olympics. Uh, wow. she, was, she was that good. Wow. DB was DB. <laughs> you know. So I realized I didn't have uh, a complete skating package. Then I went, I'd been to the uh, the uh, figure skating championships in Minneapolis, I guess it was. And I was looking for a double, two doubles. Uh, and so, and I found them. They were from two different pairs. They'd been looking for, for they'd been, they had their eyes on each other for a long time. So I ended up hiring them. And uh, it turned out that the double, after the film was done, found out that he had a hole in his heart and he had to stop skating. Uh, but wow. anyway, so I, I, uh, so then I took DB and Mara back to me, to uh, Hollywood to do a screen test because uh, I had to show Laddie what they looked like on film. And I basically spoon fed her because she'd never done this before. She'd never done a screen test. She'd never done a, like that. She was really fresh and new. So I, guided her through it and it took a long long time 
And as a result, the five other actresses that were waiting to screen test, I, I, I shot them, but I kind of gave them short shrift. She was my choice. You knew Moira, Moira was the one basically like immediately. Yeah, I knew, I knew that. And uh, Laddie said, fine, let's, let's go for it. So, uh, Paul, do you, uh, do you remember what scene you had them do for either the audition or the screen test? No, no. And it wouldn't have mattered that much because, I mean, that, you know, you, you just, you, I cast off the personality. I, yeah. I cast off the person. Uh, if the camera likes them, that, then, then that's the confirmation. But I'm, I'm always looking for the, uh, the person behind the eyes. And so uh, they were, they were, they, you know, they, they fit the bill. That's how that happened. I was curious, um, getting back to the sort of, you know, your, your approach to, to, to taking on this project in the first place. You mentioned your previous film, uh, 1987's classic, The Running Man. Arnold Schwarzenegger is The Running Man. The prize is his life. How about the life? The Running Man. A uh, major favorite of mine. And then your first film, Band of the Hand, from the previous year. This place is disgusting. It's not so bad. Yeah, it looks like home to you. Man, look, what are we doing? We're in a hotel here. You guys afraid you haven't got enough to go around? Around what? Around the block for a bit of shit? Yo, this junkie's here. Same question goes. What's that? You got the balls. To what? Cut it in Miami. Oh, man, cut the shit, okay, man? Man, what the hell does that that mean? Shut up! Both very, um, you know, action, violence, kind of oriented, um, you know, lots of guns and explosions and stuff like that. And I'm curious if you... In, in, you know, sort of deciding to, to take on this um, cutting edge film, were you looking specifically to, to sort of change direction and, and challenge yourself to do something different? Or was it just the, the script itself and falling in love with it and realizing, like, you know, you just felt drawn to it? Or Well, first of all, I'm only going to do something I'm drawn to. That's number one. Number two, I never saw myself as a action director or as a romantic comedy director or as a tragedy director. I'm the same as an actor. As an actor, I never saw myself in one way and, uh, and always pushed the envelope as much as I could. And as a director also, I was a director for hire. I wasn't the auteur that I wanted to be, but I was uh, a director for hire. A running Man, interestingly enough, had come along right after my first film, Bend of the Hand, where I didn't know the difference between being a film director and a TV director. There's a far more degree of responsibility in film, or there used to be, uh, in, in, in terms of uh, the budget that you sign off on and the ramifications of that budget. And so when I was doing the band of the hand, I got into a little bit of a fracas with the studio. That kind of headed hand in my head to me because I, there were problems with that beginning that uh, I should have foreseen. When I met Rob Cohn, the producer of uh, Running Man, he said, how, I said, how much time do you have to prepare? He said, three and a half months. And I said, that's not enough. And I passed. So then, it's a funny story, actually. Then uh, two weeks into the the film, uh, Andy Davis said the director had fallen two weeks behind. And uh, I had asked the role when that happens. And in this case, it was the director. And so Rob Cohn called my called and asked if i would take over the film this was on a thursday <laughs> and i said because one thing tv shows teachers taught me how to do is to think fast on my feet so uh, i said how long were you shut down for he said till monday so <laughs> it's a film that i turned down three and a half months prep and i and and uh, here i was given two two and a half three days but for me i i took it because uh, it was basically a win-win situation. If I did a good job, I'd get the credit. Mm-hmm. If I did a bad job, Andy Davis would get the credit. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, I said, what the hell? I, I can do this. And so I, I went and did it. And it's all about problem solving. Several folks have told us in interviews that Moira broke her ankle very 
shortly into production. Like, I don't know how quickly she broke her ankle, but everyone has made it sound like it was not far into shooting the film. And there were scenes where you had to shoot around it, either kind of keep her cast hidden, have her sit on a stool to dance so that you couldn't see that her foot was broken. I'm curious from a directing standpoint, you obviously had cast her knowing that she had the chemistry, but the reality is, is when somebody breaks their foot early into a production, that's a terrifying moment to see if you could do a physical film. What was your reaction when you learned Kelly, Moira Kelly broke her foot and what were your initial thoughts when that happened? Moira was into a bad habit of listening to her music on her earphones when she <laughs> skated, when she practiced. And, and Robin told her not to, and I told her not to. And on that particular morning, she came in, she was wearing her earphones, skated over to me, said good morning. I said, take your earphones off. She smiled, and she went off to skate, and a few minutes later, I broke her ankle. And that was uh, only a few weeks in. So we had Elliot Davis, the, the, the uh, cinematographer on the film, had uh, we, we'd come up with an idea. I, I had said to this film the camera and the sound department that i wanted to get the experience of the ice the uh the blade of the skate cutting the ice the violent action mm. but i played a lot of hockey when i was a kid so i knew what that was about and I wanted to capture that, and I also wanted to capture a lot of the 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 the, the, the uh, basically the violence in the sport. talking about action pictures and so because here you have this graceful act being done of two dancers basically but at their feet they're cutting the ice they're 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 you know it's it's dangerous and it's and it's uh, a little bit violent cut your lift arms please go on lift arms douglas please to pick her up Yes. Pick up. Okay, enough. We are finished. I told you this was ridiculous. Would you please put me down? Oh. You, you creep! Elliot came up with an idea, which I loved, which we did, uh, we had never been done before. Now you see it all the time. We did a, uh, a step print. We, we filmed at uh, a set of 24 frames a second. We filmed at eight frames. Not the whole film, just the action sequences. And then we triple printed it. And what that gave you was that gave you that stop action. You know, think, instead of sloping in slow motion, it's like, yeah, but but very quickly. And the thing I liked about it was not only what it did for the action, for the skating, but also it enabled me to utilize my uh, my doubles more. And also, I had come up with the idea, uh, even before Maura hurt herself, of uh, having a mind come in and work with them on what it was like to be on skates and do these things. And then I had uh, designed a platform that uh, the uh, the crew would it was on it was on runners and they'd push it and they'd push it and and Moira and DB would be standing on the doing different positions and uh, and uh, and I filmed it with this triple print technique uh, to you know to take a little of the onus off. That's how we that's how we 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 got that that done when she hurt herself i was damned if i was gonna do it like that same day after she hurt herself she came back and she was in the cast and i had a shot where i had she had to take a, a flat shot
I had the guys rig a, uh, it was like a, a trolley dolly, you know, it's like one of those things that they get out of trucks that carry the heavy packages, the two handles and the wheels. It kind of resembled that, but it was on uh, uh, skates, and on, on runners. And so uh, she was uh, on one of those and I just shot her from the waist up. And then there, there became, after that, there was, it was always a challenge, always a challenge, but you know, you do things like you said, you put on a stool or you, uh, I had her DB carry her into the hotel room. Right here. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> okay. Oh, whoa. <laughs> you want to dance? I don't think so. Aw, oh, Doug. <laughs> Douglas, you silly thing. Please don't think. And I had the, the, the diamond ring or whatever, the ear, whatever it is that disappeared. The earring. Yeah, the earring. Yeah, yeah. The diamond in, the, in the hotel room. Yeah. So I had a crawl in front of the ground. You know, mm-hmm. looking for it. Call the front desk and get a room of your own. I knew this wouldn't work out. I can't even concentrate. I can't even find my lucky earring. It was really, uh, it was an interesting challenge. But, you know, we did it. We did it. Hey, Paul. So your background is as an actor, and I'm curious how much of that like carried over into your directing work with The Cutting Edge. Like, you know, so much of the movie is about the relationships between the characters, whether it's Kate and Doug Dorsey, Kate and her father, Kate and her coach. Um, did you have a very like heavy-handed uh, approach? shaping the scene work between your actors or as a director on this project where you sort of more hands off and sort of allowed the actors to kind of find their way? Uh, there, well, you you know, there's basically two kinds. Those are the two kinds of directors. I'm the kind of director who I see the movie in my head and that gets me involved in everything from cinematography to sound to design to everything. And that's one of the reasons I love directing because there were so many outlets for my creativity, uh, problem solving, all of it. So, uh, and having been an actor, I enjoyed being able to uh, to watch and to influence them. Uh, you know, sometimes I couldn't get what I wanted, but most of the time I got what I wanted. And uh, and then I and then what you do is you exploit the character, the actor's own uh, sometimes their positive abilities sometimes they're negative abilities so that you know so you what you get on screen is is a real moment as opposed to an active moment so i was i was pretty you know pretty hands-on and uh yeah but i didn't i didn't uh, you know i i i'd, I'd push them in a certain area but I, I wouldn't i wouldn't break it down when i did more screen test i pretty much spoon fed her Hold the pause. Give me a pause there. Wait here. Listen to that. Don't feel like you have to react right away. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But their chemistry was pretty strong, and so you know, uh, some of the times I just let it run. And then there were times where you know, I, then the other thing I enjoyed doing was writing. Like I wrote the toe the toe pick sequence. Oh yeah, can we talk about the toe pick sequence? Yeah, <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, I came up with the a bunch of stuff and. Um, I mean, let's talk about let's talk about Topic. So this is a scene that, you know, uh, we know Tony Gilroy wrote the script. Sounds like you had a lot to do with the Topic uh, situation. So wait, tell us about Topic. This has become one of the most iconic moments of the film. Together, together. What do you do, show once a week? That an invitation? Douglas Benismore. Good. It's something that fans will still shout "toe pick," and we all know what, we're ta- what film they're talking about. <laughs> Did you have any idea when this scene was made, concepted, that this would become really the scene of the movie that everyone talks about? Did I have any idea? Did you realize, like, you know, when you were no, you, filming? You, know, you, never, you never realized it was going to catch on. I, I had, yeah. uh, I, I had, I had played a lot, played a lot of pond hockey, and one of my neighbors was uh, Tenley Albright, who was a silver medalist in the. Uh, Olympics uh, figure skater and so I was aware of figure skating and I tried it and the, the, the topic you know and, and when 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 uh, uh, Tony wrote this 
sequence, uh, um, I, I forget exactly what he wrote and what I wrote. When he asked about Topic, I, I thought, well, that's that's funny. How can she answer him? Not just give him a look, but how can she answer him? And and uh, and then that's when I realized, well, you know, let's see him suffer from Topic. <laughs> let's say something happened to him. So I had them do a, you know, she leads him in a routine. And then I shot it. I shot the hands with the thing. And I shot the skates and I shot the whole thing. Topic. And, uh, and then I... Um, after he falls, then I I had I guess I had in my mind that it was like an echo, like a topic bird. <laughs> she skated away, stopped, turned back, topic. Skated away, turn around again, topic. And turn around one last time, and then, you know, and then uh, laugh. And I just I felt like the choreography of that would be, would, would really bring it home. And uh, I guess I was right. You're Amazing. very, very right. Absolutely. Yeah. So you literally just had, like, Moira, just say topic as many times as you can in as many different ways, and then just kind of piece it together yeah like it's almost like a song you know like the way it's constructed totally totally you know it's if you you know you know the beginning of her starting the routine is going to be a music cue so you would treat it like a music cue mm. and at the end of a music cue if it's a comedy a comic moment you try to find a way to sting it you know put a period on it and so um, you know that's why what, what i did it and one of the things i've always enjoyed about directing is moving a camera and and dance i think dance is really important as a matter of fact as an actor one of my heroes was carrie grant because mm. i used to find him as dancing on a bubble his timing was so amazing and that's what i always worked on when i played starsky was my timing. so it, yeah it, it, it took shape that way and then i from my own knowledge of skating i said well give me these give me these different variety of topics you know with a vengeance you know she's like she's digging them it worked nicely yeah it worked beautifully so one thing i wanted to uh, ask about you mentioned the the violence of um of you know figure skating and and any ice skating hockey um i think this is a a good opportunity to bring up uh, perhaps the most physically terrifying and <laughs> violent uh, maneuver in the entire film of course the pamchenko um, so we, you know, we have lots of questions about the Pamchenko. We're, we're wondering to begin with what, what went through your mind the first time, you know, you read about the Pamchenko and Tony's script. How did you even visualize? He didn't, he didn't write the Pamchenko. Oh, really? The- oh, that's a bombshell. <laughs> did you, did you come up with the Pamchenko yourself? No, I was up there filming. We were filming one night and I was outside this apartment building waiting for them to finish the setup and Robert Court was there and he was worrying and worrying and he said, We need we need something to wrap this film up with. We need something. We need we need we need a a, a big trick. They gotta do something really amazing. And I said, Why? You don't need to do that. Trust the relationship, trust the chemistry. You don't need to stretch credibility by having to do something that you're not going to see ever. Physically impossible, but you know. <laughs> Physically impossible. And, uh, but Robert insisted on it, and he was the producer. So I said, okay, well. So I came up with this idea of uh, swinging her like that and then throwing her up in the air, catching her. And then we, uh, and then we shot it and we put it together. Uh, uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a bit of a cheat. <laughs> I mean, by any chance, did you, you said that you kind of like concept of this idea of like the Pamchenko. At one point, Anton Lays almost looks like little storyboard images of what this Pamchenko move is. It's like pretty much looks like caveman drawings with stick <laughs> figures hurling and twirling. Is that, was it any chance that you, these are your notes that you just kind of like <laughs> developed the Pamchenko with stick figures? Like we're kind of curious about did that. Did you put, did you draw it out on scrolls? And then put it out on the ice as Anton does in the film. I, 
I'm, I'm pretty sure I drew it up, but I don't know if they've used mine. I have a, uh, whenever I do an action sequence as a director, I always sketch out the whole sequence so I can put it in front of my first assistant, my stunt coordinator, my cinematographer, and I can say, I'm going to see any holes in this. Because uh, I just want to make sure that we all know what the drill is. Because action is the toughest thing to shoot. Uh, it, it has the most impact on the budget because it tends to go longer than you want it to. So one thing that uh, was mentioned when we were talking to uh, D.B. Sweeney recently is he, because we were you know, very curious about the pimp shank go, and he told us that um, that most of those shots, according to him, were him, in fact, twirling around a mannequin. So we were very curious if you could clear something up for the record, because uh, you know it definitely appears. It looks in human. It looks several human scenes times. that there is a human <laughs> moving appendages, and you know whose head is mere millimeters from uh, the cold hard surface of the ice. So I'm wondering if you could if you could tell us, uh, as the director of the film, you know exactly how that was shot, how much of it was, uh, you know, perhaps a a dummy versus you know a live human being. It was never a dummy. Never a dummy. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I believe it. It looked human. It looked like a human. Yeah, we're getting a lot of conflicting. I know. We're gonna have to go back to DB with this with this yeah. information. Either, was either a uh, double or Moira. Wow. So Moira actually was used for some of the the Pamchenko like practice yeah, maneuvers. Yeah, I mean, when, when stuff was isolated, you know, when you could get get a upper body isolated, head isolated, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, there's uh, yeah, I don't recall. Wow. Hmm. All right. Well, so we're talking about the Pamchenko. So we're thinking about that final scene. We have all sort of wondered whether or not that, whether Kate and Doug would have won the gold medal. We know they kiss, they fall in love, they're going to be with each other happily ever after. But there's some conflicting thought and opinion. We spoke to DB. He feels that Kate and Doug would have won the gold medal. We also spoke to Tony Gilroy, who said he wasn't so sure and that they probably did not win the gold medal. Um, obviously, well, because the Pamchenko the, is an illegal yeah. move, right? Right. The Pamchenko is not only physically impossible, but also prohibited in Olympic competition. <laughs> so, Paul Michael Glazer, we have you. Can we get you on the record? Do you feel that they that Doug and Kate win the gold medal? It wasn't important to me. Wow. Okay. Because, because them falling in love and declaring their love for each other is the end of the movie. Right. Now you gild the lily with the, the, the audience's reaction and the announcer's reactions to this, this, uh, this feat. But you don't, you, don't really need to, you don't really need to come down one way or another on it and say they wanted it or they didn't want it. That's a particularly American uh, need. Obviously, they win. They do win, so, you know, or they do win. They win each other. Sure. They win the gold medal. I don't know. You know, I'm I'm wary to say one or the other, one way or the other because I was never a fan of the trick in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> I choose to believe that I choose to believe they won. That Pamchenko move is so stunning that even if it's illegal, you're like, I'm gonna allow it. Gold medal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well by that that by that point in the in the game, that was my point when I argued it with Robert Court. Uh, by that point in the game. You're not invested, you know. Maybe a piece of it was invested in them winning, but uh, you're you're really invested in the relationship. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think Christian had the theory at one point. He floated. They probably win the gold because the judges are floored, but then they simultaneously say, "Like this is banned forever. We can never allow this. It's way can too dangerous. Never happen again. <laughs> We're happy these two people to... fell in love. We'll give them the gold, but from here yeah. on in, this is illegal. We can't have other people trying to pull off this maneuver and suffering catastrophic injury over and over <laughs> again. So, yeah. yeah, that's a convenient rationalization. Yeah, <laughs> but I I love your answer. Uh, Paul, because it it does fit right in like the movie, the whole, you know, script and and filming and, and, you know, every scene is so uh, efficient and, and, uh, you know, there's not a single wasted line, not a single wasted moment. So I'm with you. Like, you don't need to see any more than, you know, what's there on film. I think it's, you know, perfect. So I wanted to ask you about, I mean, we, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, D.B. Sweeney and Moira Kelly. Obviously, they're the the main stars and, and the kind of, you know, essence of the film. 
but it is such a, an amazing, you know, ensemble cast. Um, you know, we have Roy Detrice and Terry O'Quinn and uh, Dwyer Brown. So I was wondering if you could talk a little about, you know, working with those actors and, and how it was to to work with uh, some some legends uh, like that. Roy Detrice. The first time I ever saw Roy Detrice was in 1964. I spent some time visiting and attending rehearsals for the uh, Royal Shakespeare Company in, in Stratford, uh, in England. And they were doing War of the Roses. He was playing Hotspur. Uh, he plays a couple other roles also. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, but I hadn't seen him in years. And then uh, his name came up, and I looked at him, and I thought, well, he certainly has a nice quality about him. And, uh, and there's an endearing thing about him that I really like. Uh, so it was a pleasure to, you know, to work with Roy. He's a, uh, he was a, uh, an accomplished actor. And uh, there's an innocence about him when, you know, you, you kind of watch him and he's saying, well, you do this and you don't do that. But he, he, the cliche would have been somebody who really knows it all, you know, who really knows it and says, well, this is, you know, my, my secret is what I know. Uh, and I didn't want to go in that direction. I wanted to, to be trying to figure it out as well. Um, Terry was uh, Terry was was terrific. He was uh, you know he was kind of buttoned up and got the job done. You know, I, I knew. I remember planting her face in the, in the oatmeal. Hey, and uh, at that, I'd get a real good reaction from him for that. You know, one other character that sticks in my mind in this film is the character Rick Tuttle, Kate's former coach. Uh, He plays an important role in Kate's psychology throughout this film. He shows up from time to time purely to kind of cause mental uh, anguish, to rattle her confidence as they get closer to the Olympics. Rick is coaching Laurie and Brian later in the film. We see a little of him, but he kind of disappears. And I'm curious, were there more sequences with Rick Tuttle uh, than what we saw in the final film? No. No, no. Uh, you know, you want him in there just enough to, to you know, a fly in the ointment, you know, to create a threat or a danger. But I... Well, the menace was felt. Rick Tuttle's menace and uh, the way he presides over the competition without really showing his face. But we really do think he's pulling a lot of strings to oh, yes. ruin Kate and Doug. We are fans. So this confirms no Rick Tuttle was uh, <laughs> on the cutting room floor, folks. Mm-mm. But Rick's psychological torture was simmering on the ice. It was there. He did. Yeah. He, live, you know? he lives on in all of our heads, you know. Absolutely. Living rent free. Sometimes less is more. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good Indeed. point. Indeed. A lot of times uh, I call it radio. You, 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 uh, you accomplish more by uh, not defining uh, the negative space letting it just be there and let the audience's imagination fill it, you know? So it's like listening to radio. You're hearing the words and the voices, but you're not seeing the action. So you have to imagine it. It's like Miles Davis said, it's the notes you don't play, right? <laughs> it's kind yes. of, it really is. It's sometimes I, you gotta I make would those say, choices. Yeah. If, if anyone has listened to our podcast, they know just how much our imaginations have filled that space. So bravo. I think, I think mission yes. accomplished there. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, Paul. So, um, you know, like, like I said to you before, we've been talking about this movie for a few months. We've really gotten into some great detail about some of the, uh, you know, minutia. Um, and we've sort of become obsessed with uh, a certain location, um, a certain steakhouse where, uh, of course, Doug Dorsey and, uh, and Kate and, and Hale and the whole family, they're, they're celebrating going to nationals. And Hale announces his, his engagement to, um, to Kate. So we were wondering that scene at High Steakhouse in Toronto. Could you tell us a little bit about Highs? Did you ever maybe get to enjoy a meal at Highs? Um, I know they're supposed to have famous garlic toast. Everyone's wild for the garlic toast. Um, did you ever enjoy a meal at Highs? Can you, do, you re- do you recall anything about the experience of filming at Highs? I recall that there was a schedule to keep and I had to get X amount of shots. And I had a table with with all these people around it. So I, I just, I 
went at it that way. I was very clinical. I just said, okay, this is what I have to do. I was, I chose the location compared to the other locations as best I can remember. It just seemed like the best best location for that. A little sterile, a little modern, a little foreign to 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 the intimacy of, of uh, Kate and Doug. You wanted, I wanted to put them in a situation where it's not comfortable. Yeah, it definitely feels like a place that either Hale or Jack selected. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's 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 their kind of you know atmosphere. Um, but yeah, I love that scene for it's it's almost uh, it reminded me of like an Altman film. The way there's you know so much dialogue all at, all at once. There's just this like cacophony of of you know every character is kind of you know off on their own little uh, you know wavelength and stuff. Um, was that something that like was that scene like something that that took a long time to shoot? Was was it like multiple takes or was it just kind of like let's just kind of like you know, go for it and, 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 you know, kind of one and done kind of thing, or was it a lot more complicated? Well, you know, what you do is you, you set up the scene so that you play the whole scene through. You, you, you get, let the actors find the scene, play it all the way through, play it all the way through. And then you, you drop the camera on it. You'd say, okay, I'm going to shoot this, I'm going to shoot this, 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 this. And uh, so while they were playing the scene and rehearsing, I'd walk around and I'd be watching them and also I'd be, finding good angles and stuff like that. And uh, it's interesting you should mention that because that scene, I don't think that scene for me ever completely worked. I think mm. it was because, you know, when you when you have actors and you see the, the good qualities they have and the qualities you wish they had, you know, and so you try to avoid the qualities, the, the avoid missing those the the when you what you wanted them to have and and uh this was a, a scene that kind of emphasized for me a narrower interpretation of each one of the characters it was a little cliche you know that doug would have this situation i mean it's, we've seen that scene a million times you know he's he's full of hope and boom, here comes the announcement about like that. I think I'll throw another log on the fire. Hell, please. Now's the time. The fact is, I've asked Kate to marry me, and she's accepted. Fantastic. Oh, hail. Congratulations. Thank you. Gorgar. It's great. I would have liked to, I would have liked the scene to have, have had a little more depth to it so it had a little more punch you know a little more uh, a little more teeth um, we sort of love it though because we learn a little bit about every character's having their own conversation yeah running. doug wants to throw kate into the ceiling so high she's going to be scraped off the ceiling with a putty knife <laughs> anton's riding high ordering stoli uh yeah berating is... berating the wait staff uh, <laughs> talking about caviar yeah. <laughs> we kind of love it like I think you, you got to credit Tony with that. Mm. A, you know, yeah, Tony is masterful at creating those kind of situations. Yeah, we we definitely uh, when we talked to him mentioned how much we loved little character developments throughout. Another thing that I think rides this film to another level is the soundtrack as well. I mean, there are a lot of pretty inspired choices. We got Dan Reed Network's Baby Now I, uh, Nia People's Street of Dreams, Yellow's The Race is like the most inspired main performance song you could have chosen, Joe Cocker's Feels Like Forever, Black Box Ride on Time, uh, Turning Circles by Elisa Pimer. Just curious how you went about choosing songs for this film. I am one of those people, people say, who are your favorite rock stars or recording stars when you're growing up? I didn't have any. I wasn't a groupie. I would like songs. I'd hear a song and I'd become, you know, so I'd hear a Beatles song and I'd go, oh, I like that. Well, there were plenty of Beatles songs I didn't like. When I direct movies, basically what I do to my, my musical director, I, I said, look, at, I want to make sure, A, that you get the movie, that you feel it, that, you know, that you relate to it. And then I want you to bring me your music. Bring me whatever you think I should listen to. So in the course of pre-production and production, I'll listen to a, a zillion songs. And then, uh, you know, and I'll choose which ones I like, uh, which work for it. When I did the air up there, my editor, um, Michael, uh, 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 Michael had a, my editor had, had put in the, comes back and, 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 and they, he's announced, and he comes out on the basketball court and he, 
slaps high five with the, uh, the chief's bodyguard. And, you know, Michael had put in the song as a temporary, you know, what was the song? It was, uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember. But it was a, it was a really nice song. It was kind of contrapuntal. It was like, it was a love song. Uh, it, uh, and and I, I looked at it and I said, let's use that. And then when I came time to finalize the film, I said I wanted to keep it. <laughs> and I got all kinds of static for that. But I but we kept it and it worked. It worked really well. Uh, so, you know, sometimes you see music, you can see, you see the image in the music and sometimes you see the music in the image. It, it, it depends. But I've never, I've never, I, I know the feeling I want to get. You know, I like, like for instance, in the, the, when they're practicing the ballet. contrasts so much with, with him. And nothing contrasts more with opera than Yellow's The Race. <laughs> Driven by uh, the same band that wrote the famous Ferris Bueller song, for very whimsical songs and I think as a choice for a main program uh, yeah, that would yeah. definitely stand out from your Beethoven's and Bach performances um, so well, you inspire know, choice no I basically what I do is I, I tell my music director and everybody I said this is what I feel I feel this is bright or I feel this is, uh, this is jazzy this is you know it's percussion I want a lot of percussion here or, you know whatever syncopation and then they bring me stuff, and I pick from what they bring me. And let's say they don't bring me the right thing, then we go back to the drawing board. But there's that song. I never liked it. That song when it's when when he, when he DB meets the fiance. Oh, at the New Year's Eve party. At the New Year's Eve party. Oh well, the there's the band they're playing. Is it the Lenny Kravitz Love song? Shack? Love. They're playing Love Shack. Beef well, they start Love with Shack. Love Shack, but then they Love transition Shack. to Oh yeah, Love Shack. Yeah. I hated it so. Wow. I mean, it is a. I kind of agree with you. Love, no, Love Shack is a crazy song. For a cocktail party, B-52's Love Shack is a wild choice. (laughs) You know, really, if you really think about it, so I kind of agree with Paul here that that is a a choice and a half by the little jazz trio. Mm -hmm. Also, like, like, you know, we're going to do B-52's. No, I I felt like it should be a a song that that reflected, you know, they they have a group, they're playing the music, so... You know, let's have some, you know, jazz, some, uh, some, uh, maybe, maybe it's cliche jazz, so it's a bit pretentious. Yeah. Yeah. Something like the, 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 the jacket it picked out. Yeah. <laughs> Which is well, uh, Patrick Williams, music director for The Cutting Edge, uh, you're officially on notice here. So uh, <laughs> you, you heard it here first. Um, sorry. Sorry, Pat. Sorry, Patrick. <laughs> and Paul, I think it was, uh, it was the editor for the air up there named Michael Polakow? Polakow. Polakow? Yeah. Michael Polakow cut my film air up there, Cutting Edge, and, uh, I wonder if he did any other song. I can't remember. But Michael's a wonderful editor, and he was great. And he'd, he'd always come with, you know, he put together a, 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 a editor's cut with all kinds of music, you know. 
nudge me and push me in different directions, you know. So I I enjoyed that, and I enjoyed working with him very much because, you know, the people don't understand in the editing. I went years ago after I'd done Fiddler on the Roof, the movie. You stand around, you curse, and you chatter, and you don't do anything. You'll all chatter your way into the grave. Excuse me. You're not from this village. No. Where are you from? Kiev. I was a student in the university there. <laughs> Tell me, is that a place where you learned how not to respect your elders? <laughs> that is where I learned there is more to life than talk. You should know what's going on in the outside world. I was kind of disillusioned with the whole movie world of actors. So I went to Rome and I lived there and I wrote a, a screenplay because I wanted to, to direct. And uh, I wrote the screenplay as a 280-page poem. And the reason why it came out to 280 pages was that I was really fascinated with the notion that the speed at which you turn the pages would influence how you interacted with the story. You know, if you had to turn them fast, it create tension. It was a it was a fun experiment, and but the same principle applies to editing. You know, uh, the other thing about editing that people aren't aware of is that when the equipment became lighter, when they stopped using the big old Mitchells and those big heavy cameras, and they started using the Panaflex, and then <coughs> even lighter cameras, the support equipment, the cranes, the dollies, all of that were easier to move. You have to remember, film is moving through the gate. Now it's tape, but it's film is moving through. It's in motion. When something is in motion, the best way to emphasize a moment is to stop the motion. Right. You could slow it down. You can bring it to a dead stop. That requires that you have an awful lot of cuts, that you can create a rhythm. And then when you stop, it means something, you know? And so um, uh, when you're cutting a film like Cutting Edge, you really want to pay attention to your rhythm and to, to you know, what, what you're doing. It's like the sequence in the beginning where they run into each other in the car, though. Go up to the ice. Is that all you have to say? What were you raised in? A barn? Honey, where I'm from, we stand for the national anthem. You know you're gonna cut back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And you want each one of those cuts when you go back and forth. The same cut, but to be a little bit different, a little bit faster, a little more frenetic. And so it's bum 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 boom. Anyways, I just went off on a tangent on editing. No, I love that. I love, I love getting in the weeds with that stuff, yeah. Well, Paul, we don't want to uh, take up too much of your time, so um, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, just any final you know, questions here? Um, do you have a favorite memory, any sort of favorite uh, uh, scene or, or relationship that you formed in your time working on The Cutting Edge? The whole thing, the whole, the, the, I, I knew I could do it. I knew I knew it was my kind of thing. So from the get-go, I had that feeling. And then, you know, there were sequences that I really enjoyed. I loved Topic. I loved, you know, we, we had a, uh, we had no snow there. The, the scene where where uh, 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 the coach comes to, to get Doug Dorsey, I had wanted to shoot on a pond at night. Uh, mm. The construction I, site scene, you mean? Yeah, exactly. I, I, I had, so I, I had this image because I used to play a lot of pond hockey of being at the edge of the ice and headlamps, you know, from, from trucks uh-huh. lighting mm-hmm. the ice. And so the near goal would be visible, the farther would. So people would, A, would be cut, cut up, skating out of the dark into light, and B, they're coming at us. And, but the uh, winter was a warm winter and there was no, no ice out there so we had to uh, change the scene and uh, which I wasn't happy about and then one day we're in production office we're still in pre-production and they say it's snowing out at such and such location and I immediately sent somebody out there I said call us tell us how it's doing and they called and they said it's, it's accumulating on the ground but it's wet snow. We don't know how long it's going to be. And I grabbed everybody. I grabbed everybody and dragged them out there. And we shot that sequence where there's establishing shots of the ranch. The snow is falling. And then there's shots of 
of uh, uh, the, the two of them running, and she's chasing him because he's taking her hat. That's got snow in it. We shot mm. in like seven hours. We shot the snow out. We just there's no more snow, <laughs> and, and that was all we had to to establish our, our quote winter. So you know, the, the film has a lot of a lot of uh, fond memories for me, and I was kind of gratified that in, in spite of the Petrovko, it's been so graciously received and appreciated by people. You know, it's uh, it's great. Some of my favorite movies were, you know, like what was that movie that that uh, what's his name sticks a grapefruit in the girl's face? Uh, oh, um, Public Enemy. Yeah, was it Public Enemy? I, don't know. I I think so. Yeah, with uh, with um, James uh, Cagney. Yeah, Cagney. And I was going to say uh, Edward Rob- Robinson, but no, it was Cagney. Yeah, Public Enemy yeah. from like the early thirties. Already, Tom. Ain't you got a drink in the house? Well, not before breakfast, dear. I didn't ask you for any lip. I asked you if you had a drink. I know, Tom, but... Well, gee, I, I wish that... Hey, you go down wishing stuff again. I wish you was a wishing well. That I'd like a tie a bucket to you and sink you. Maybe you found someone you like better. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, it happened one night. You think it's simple, huh? No, no. Well, it is simple. It's all that old thumb, see? Yeah. Now, some people do it like this. Or like this. All wrong. Never get anywhere. Oh, the poor thing. Yeah, boy, but that old thumb never failed. It's all a matter of how you do it, though. You know, now, you take number one, for instance. That's a short, jerky movement like this. That shows independence. You don't care whether they stop or not. You got money in your pocket, see? Clever. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, but number two, that's a little wider movement. Smile goes with this one like this. That means you got a brand new story about the farmer's daughter. Mm-mm. You figured that out all by yourself. Huh? Yeah, that's nothing. Yeah, number three, that's a pip. Yeah, that's the pitiful one. You know, when you're broke and hungry and everything looks black? That's a long, sweeping movement like this. Got to follow through, though. Oh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's no good, though, if you haven't got a long face to go with it. Here comes the car. Okay, now watch me. I'm going to use number one. Keep your eye on that thumb, baby, and see what happens. I stood up my eye on the thumb. Movies like that were just delightful. Uh, Cary Grant and uh, and uh, and that uh, that uh, uh, film. Uh, you know the uh, the one where the the the, the aunts are poisoning everybody. Uh, is that arsenic and old lace? Arsenic and old lace. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I I really uh, the, the, those those films were uh, near and dear to me. Well, we think this film this film definitely holds up. We really, you know, I think the the kind of rat-a-tat dynamic between these two is something that feels relevant now as it did back then. Uh, we just think it's a super well-done film. And honestly, we thank you very much for your time chatting with us, just telling us all your memories of this really great film. And we know it's inspired other films and filmmakers still talk about it. And in general, we just wanted to say thank you. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Glad, glad it, it, it's had its effect. And uh, it's really amazing to talk to a few guys who are so uh, uh, well-read uh, in, 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 uh, in the film business. I don't have to remember <laughs> anything. You'll remember it for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we all try our best to like each study our certain time period so that we can just rattle them out, the Cagney yep. films, whatever. We, ever, so. we try to have our bases covered have here. Seen, Absolutely. Have you seen... In this movie, 3,000 Years of Solitude. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, George Miller, 3,000 Years of Solitude. Uh, oh, wait, 3,000 Years of Solitude. Based, George uh, Miller. George Miller. Yeah, yeah it's a great, um, honestly, it's wildly underrated. Uh, go check Wild, it out. Wildly underrated. Yes. The first, uh, I don't, the first film I've seen by a director who I would like to see direct my, you know, I wrote this book called Cristalia and the Source of Light. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. You are? Yeah, well, we know that you had written stuff, and we have been doing our due diligence here at the podcast, so we're very much well, fans I, of your work. I, I asked again, you are, because it's a, it's a, it's a book that kids love, uh, young people love, but it's for the whole family, and it's a, it's a very, it's a very uh, uh, 
if it ever gets made as a movie, it's going to be a very uh, uh, dramatic undertaking because it's going to make movies look different than they've ever looked. Anyways, I watched George that film by George Miller, and I, and I listened to an interview with him, and I, it was the first time in my life I went, that's someone that, because I don't want to sit with a green screen for two years, there's someone <laughs> I'd like to see that, so yeah. it's not... Oh man, okay, we gotta guys. make we gotta make that happen somehow. I guess. Yeah, we're gonna. George Miller is on the podcast next week. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> no, but thank you very much for your time. We really do appreciate you coming on to chat with us about the cutting edge, and uh, yeah, really, just thank you for taking time to talk to us. Thank yeah. you, again, Paul. Well, guys, good luck to you all. All right, take appreciate care. Appreciate it. You can listen to Switch. 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 Switch.